Okay, Jeremiah Lamentations. Uh, do we have about two and a half hours? Because that's about how much time I need to go through these books. Um, I wish we did, because um, right now Jeremiah became my new favorite book in the Old Testament. But, you know, that changes every time you read through it. So there's a lot to talk about, but this is some good stuff. So let's pray here as we get started. Father, you know that each one of us right now are stressed and under time pressure and lots of other pressure in our lives, but help us not to neglect the most important thing, which is a closeness with you, a friendship with you, time spent with you, and uh, may our time spent just now discussing the book of Jeremiah bring us closer into relationship and friendship with you. Amen. Let me tell you what we're going to do here. We have four Bible studies left until uh, summer break, so including this one. So here's what we're going to do. First of all, this is the last time I'm going to show you this slide, okay? Because we are now very sadly uh, done talking about the 10 northern tribes here of Israel. Lost, gone forever. So um, we're now just discussing Judah and Benjamin, two tribes that are left. Okay, so... uh, beginning with King Manasseh and all the way down to Zedekiah, the last king here before the uh, Babylonian captivity. And I thought what we would do here in the last four Bible studies is today we're going to do Jeremiah and Lamentations because notice here, this is incredible, Jeremiah was a prophet during the time of Josiah all the way through, in fact, beyond the Babylonian captivity. His message extended over a very, very long period of time. So it's a good... um, kind of overview, and uh, then we will talk next time about Ezekiel, and then I think we'll spend our last two on the book of Daniel, which is really not fair. If we're just counting up number of words, number of chapters, we should be spending two or three on Jeremiah and one on Daniel, but anyway, you'll see why uh, we need to spend a little more time talking about the book of Daniel. So the message of Jeremiah to all of these kings, and especially coming here into the, uh, the three invasions, there were three invasions of Jerusalem by the Babylonians, but his message to these kings, Jehoiakim, Jehoiachin, Zedekiah, was surrender, surrender, surrender. Give in, don't fight, give in to the Babylonians. And they didn't want to hear that message. But it's interesting here, as we notice the three invasions, Daniel was taken off in the first invasion of Jerusalem. Things went pretty well for Daniel. Look at, uh, you know, he was in Nebuchadnezzar's court. Ezekiel was taken off in the second invasion of Jerusalem. And then finally, we have the poor people that were left that just refused to listen to the message of Jeremiah that are left here in 586. And so it got worse and worse and worse. They should have listened to Jeremiah. And just as a very big picture here, after the Babylonian captivity in 586, you'll recall that they spent some time in Babylon And in 539, the Persians conquered Babylon. Remember the exciting story here of the handwriting on the wall that night, and then the Persians snuck into uh, the capital of uh, Babylon and uh, took over. So we have a Persian rule, and then we have the Edict of Cyrus for the Jews to return, and that's what we'll talk about next fall. And that's when we get into the books of Ezra, Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah. And some amazing things happened here because uh, Ezra and Nehemiah decided, hey, it'd be a good idea if everyone uh, would read uh, the Bible. So they bring everyone together to read the Bible, and guess what? No one understands Hebrew anymore. All right, so they've all, they're off into captivity for 70 years, 
and so uh, they don't understand the language. So they need translators to go around and help them understand the Bible. And then we have the walls of Jerusalem restored in 445 BC. This is around the time of the book of Malachi. And it's really amazing here that we have 400 years plus from the book of Malachi till Jesus Christ. No books written during that period of time. But of course, during that time, the Greeks have a several hundred year period of rule. And then the Romans take Jerusalem in 63 BC. And then of course, we have Herod the Great as a ruler when Jesus Christ uh, is born. Okay, so these are things that we won't get to for a while, but that's the big picture coming up to uh, the birth of Jesus. Okay, now I wanted to just go through because, uh, you know, there are several ways of looking at the plan of salvation. And uh, I see all of these books reinforcing uh, perhaps a certain way of uh, looking at this. And again, it's uh, the purpose of contrasting is not to uh, condemn uh, any certain view or to be critical. But I'll just share with you, this is kind of the picture that I had grown up with most of my life, and I'm maybe understanding things a little differently. That doesn't mean it's right. You guys have to make up your own mind. But this is how I'd understood things, that um, we are to have a perfect conformity to God's law. But something happened here. Sin, which is ultimately defined, again, in some models as a breaking of the rules, and that our ultimate problem here with God is a legal problem. Okay, we've broken the rules and uh, we need to have perfect conformity, perfect behavior uh, to the, the, the God's law. And so by this uh, understanding of sin and the problem being predominantly a legal problem, okay, here's the issue. God must inflict a just punishment for sin to be a God of justice, and that is God's wrath. Sin is a quantity that must either be punished or pardoned and that Jesus took that punishment at the cross for you and I and that we are saved by accepting what Jesus did for us and by accepting him as our savior, we are covered by the righteousness of Christ. Okay? Now, I just want to suggest, and Jeremiah, every book is an opportunity. We're always you know, seeking to reevaluate, understand our model of things and People often get real upset when we talk about the atonement and, and so on. But let me just suggest perhaps uh, maybe another way of looking at this. What I see again and again in every book, and it's emphasized in Jeremiah as, as much as any other book in the Old Testament, is that the ultimate, what God wants more than anything else, is a knowing, intimate relationship, friendship with him. Eternal life is to know God. This is the pinnacle as described uh, I don't know how many times. I mean, you can't read a book in the Bible without coming across this. To know God is what it's all about. That ultimately, relationship is what God wants. And when we're in that relationship, remember the verse we read in Psalms some time ago, to know God is to trust Him. If you know God, the trust automatically comes along with that. Faith, trust, one Greek word in the New Testament. So we trust God because we, we know what He's like. We understand. We like what He's like. We trust Him. And when, when that process is in place, well, by naturally, healing takes place. You know, salvation really means healing. When you salvage something, you're putting broken pieces back together. When you put a salve on a wound, it's to heal the wound. And God is like a heavenly physician. He wants to heal us of our selfishness, of our sinfulness. And he's in the business of doing that now, not just when we arrive in the hereafter. And so as a natural 
process. When we are in an intimate, knowing friendship with God, it's unavoidable that healing occurs, a Christ-like character develops, and we have the law of love written on the heart. All law points to love. All of the rules point to one thing, love God, love your neighbor. And all of the specific rules would not have been necessary if we were loving God and our neighbor. All right, so this is the process here. Does that mean we have to be perfect? Uh, Was a thief in the cross perfect uh, as he died? No, but he loved and admired the one hanging next to him. He trusted him, and Jesus said, that's good. That's what I want. But again, just like a sick patient coming to the doctor again and again and again, God is absolutely able to heal and restore those that remain and enter into a closer relationship with him. So I would see this here as the the positive uh, side here of the plan of salvation. This is what God wants. Okay, but then there's a problem, sin. And how do we define sin? Well, uh, sin ultimately, and I won't go through all the verses now, but as, as I understand it, is ultimately a relational problem. Our relationship, our trust in God is broken. And as we could show from many examples, the root of all of this is lies believed about who God is. That's exactly what happened to Adam and Eve. Their picture of God, as they believed the words of Satan, uh, became exactly contrary to his true character. That God is harsh, arbitrary, severe, vengeful, and punishing. And that picture of God becomes internalized. And, I mean, the natural thing... If you suddenly believe someone to be an arbitrary tyrant, do you trust them? Do you want to be in relationship with them? So sin has broken our relationship with God. Sin is something that happens in the mind initially. And so it's a distrustful, rebellious attitude toward God. And so this process here, as we break the relationship with God, as we break our trust in God, as we break apart from God in our mind, is what I understand is the Bible describes as God's anger as he separates from his children. And then we have rebellious actions, fear, self-destruction, chaos, and death. What we usually call sin, lying, stealing, murder, those kinds of things are only possible when we first sin, when we first rebel right upstairs, Okay, when we uh, have separated ourselves from God. And then there are the outward manifestations of that. Okay, And so... What happens as we separate from God, this process of God's anger, is that sin pays the wage. Sin does all the punishing. And um, this is a natural consequence of sin. And I'm going to try to highlight a little bit of this here in the book of Jeremiah. But just to, to come up here again, just on this knowing God as the essence of everything, just a few verses of this in Jeremiah. My people are stupid. Why? They don't know me. They are like foolish children. They have no understanding. As we described what wisdom is in uh, Proverbs, wisdom is ultimately to know God. That is the real source of wisdom and knowledge of God. That's the problem. The priest did not ask, where is the Lord? My own priest did not know me. Again, eternal life is to know God. That's the root of the problem. They don't know me. They don't understand me. And then this verse, I feel like uh, just... Boy, I rest my case. Jeremiah 9. The Lord says, The wise should not boast of their wisdom, nor the strong of their strength, nor the rich of their wealth. If any want to boast, they should boast that they know and understand me. That's it. Now, what do we we know when we know and understand God? Well, we read on to clarify. Because, what do they know? My love is constant, and I do what is just and right. 
To know and to understand God is to fully understand what he is like in character. Remember Jesus said, I don't want to call you servants anymore. I want to call you friends. Why? Friends know what their master is doing. Okay, we know and we understand God. We can't fully know and understand God, but we're to be on that road of coming closer and closer to really knowing God. This is what Paul, John, you know, their message was, everything else is worthless except a knowing relationship with God. So again, coming back to this, as we enter in, begin to enter into this eternal life experience of knowing God, trust is established, and then we have this healing process with the law of love written on the heart. And uh, Jeremiah, again, just nails this beautifully in Jeremiah 31. The Lord says, well, I guess God nailed it perfectly. These are God's words. The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the old covenant that I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. Although I was like a husband to them, they did not keep that covenant. The new covenant that I will make with the people of Israel will be this. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts. And that law, remember, all law points to love, love for God, love for neighbor. That's the law that's written on our hearts. But notice, what do we associate with the law written on the heart? I will be their God. They will be my people. None of them will have to teach a neighbor to know the Lord because all will know me. To know God is to love him, is to trust him, and is to have that law of love written on the heart from the least to the greatest. Okay, that's the new covenant experience. And we can only have that fully if we've internalized the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Okay, so on the other spectrum, you know, I made the point that when we are separated from God in this process of God's anger, that sin pays the wage. And let's give some evidence for that here in the book of Jeremiah. What accusation did your ancestors bring against me? What made them turn away from me? They worshipped worthless idols and became worthless themselves. They did not care about me. Again, when we worship a false god, whether that's a crocodile or a frog like in Egypt or a vengeful arbitrary god that is entirely the contrast of what Jesus revealed God to be, um, there's a na- God doesn't have to do something to us to make us worthless. Um, it is a natural process. We harden our hearts and minds as we are continually looking at a God that is the opposite of Jesus Christ. In Jeremiah 2, you have brought this on yourself by abandoning the Lord your God when he led you on his way. Notice, your own wickedness will correct you and your unfaithful ways will punish you. That's what does the punishing. You should know and see how evil and bitter it is for you if you abandon the Lord your God. And in Jeremiah 4, Judah, you have brought this on yourself by the way you have lived and by the things you have done. Your sin has caused this suffering. It has stabbed you through the heart. Okay, there are devastating consequences when we are fully and completely separated from God. That's what does the punishing. It stabs us through the heart. I mean, if you're a, um, a patient and you see a physician, maybe you're having cough and fever, and the doctor does some tests and finds out, uh, maybe through x-ray, that you have a pneumonia and gives you an antibiotic, and you go home, and you just set that antibiotic on the shelf and don't take it. Uh, does that doctor in his anger need to come at nighttime and do something to you so that uh, your pneumonia gets worse? Or does the pneumonia do the punishing? Um, if you jump off a cliff, does God need to set in process the motion of gravity so that you fall and hurt yourself? Or is it a natural consequence of breaking the law of gravity? 
Um, if you don't brush your teeth, do dentists on uh, dentist visits need to insert cavities into your teeth? Or is it a natural process of not brushing your teeth? This is a natural law that when we are apart from God, sin itself does the punishing. And I hope some of you aren't offended here, but I mean, this is an Adventist institution, so I can bring up uh, something that was written a long, long time ago. But it's just words that I agree with that seem to summarize this well. We are not to regard God as waiting to punish the sinner for his sin. The sinner brings the punishment upon himself. His own actions start a train of circumstances that bring the sure result. Every act of transgression reacts upon the sinner, works in him a change of character, and makes it more easy for him to transgress again. By choosing to sin, men separate themselves from God, that's the essence of it, cut themselves off from the channel of blessing, and the sure result is ruin and death. Okay, that's it in a nutshell. It, it's, it's a natural process. So, again, this separation, um, I mean, I think God's anger is a good description for it. You know, as a parent of three kids, and I imagine one of them just, you know, totally rebelling and going off. I mean, yeah, it's anger, sure. And God uses hard words just like uh, any loving parent would. If your child is, you know, playing near a rattlesnake and they don't see it, you know, would you only use gentle words, hey, better come away from the rattlesnake, uh, you know, they think uh, you're just meddling in their play, so they're annoyed. You know, would you shout? Would you even threaten? Absolutely. It's the only loving thing to do. So we have threatening words from God to reach stubborn mules. God will shout. But just notice this relationship. I'm only going to mention it here in the book of Jeremiah. I mentioned this briefly, I think, when we went through Deuteronomy. But the relationship dozens and dozens and dozens of times in the Bible between God's anger and his abandoning, giving up, letting go, handing over. Let's just mention a few here in Jeremiah. First of all, we have to say that this is how God feels about his children. The people I love are doing evil things. Does God hate the sinner? No, the people who are doing evil things, God loves. He hates what it is doing to his child. And so we have this process here where the Lord says, I have abandoned Israel. I've rejected my chosen nation. I have given the people I love into the power of their enemies. He gives them up he abandons them. But what I want to point out now is just in the book of Jeremiah, this relationship, once again, between God's anger and his handing over. Jeremiah 21 is a great chapter for this. Notice initially, I will fight, God's words, I will fight against you with all my might, my anger, my wrath, and my fury. I will kill everyone living in the city. People and animals alike will die of a terrible disease. Anyone who stays in the city will be killed in war or by starvation or disease. But those who go out and surrender to the Babylonians who are now attacking the city will not be killed. They will at least escape with their life. I have made up my mind not to spare this city, but to destroy it. It will be given over to the king of Babylonia and he will burn it to the ground. Okay, so first we have God saying, I'm going to fight against you with all my might, my anger, my fury. And we read on for clarification, I will give it over to the king of Babylon. Okay, again, reading on here in chapter 21. Listen to what I, the Lord, am saying. See that justice is done every day. Protect the person who's being cheated from the one who is cheating him. If you don't, the evil you are doing will make my anger burn like a fire that cannot be put out. You, Jerusalem, are sitting high above the valleys like a rock rising above the plain. But I will fight against you. You say that no one can attack you or break through your defenses, but I will punish you for what you have done. I will set your palace on fire and the fire will burn down everything around it. I, the Lord, have spoken. Okay, did, again, did God himself burn down Jerusalem? 
No, he handed it over to the king of Babylon. In Jeremiah 25, the Lord has abandoned his people like a lion that leaves its cave. The horrors of war and the Lord's fierce anger have turned the country into a desert. Anger, abandonment, they go together. Jeremiah 32, I am going to give this city over, hand it over to King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon and his army. They will capture it and set it on fire. They will burn it down together with the houses where the people have made me angry by burning incense to Baal on the rooftops and by pouring out wine offerings to other gods. Okay, and the Lord, the God of Israel, told me to go and say to King Zedekiah of Judah, I, the Lord, will hand this city over to the king of Babylon. So it's there many times. And uh, the clearest description of God's anger is Romans 1, and, uh, where Paul says, you know, he's going to talk about God's anger, his wrath. How does God punish? And then three times he says, God in his anger hands over, gives up, gives up, gives up. Three times. And then in Romans 4.25, Jesus was handed over because of our sins. And what did Jesus say on the cross? My God, my God, why have you given me up? Why have you handed me over? Why have you forsaken me? Okay, we say that the sins of the world were laid on Jesus. Would that not be a separation from his father? Does that not reveal to us the uh, terrible enormity of the, the sin problem and the separation from God that this causes? Okay, but we see that relationship here going all the way back. But some might wonder, um, you know, why would God ever give up? Why would he ever hand over? Why would he ever abandon? And the issue is freedom. I mean, you cannot really have love without freedom. God could not create all of us as free moral beings and then say, the minute you rebel, that's it. Uh, I'm executing you. It's over. No, we have to be free to rebel, uh, even to spit in God's face. And of course, people did spit in God's face when he lived on earth. All right, so we are free to rebel. And that's rather scary. But listen to these words here in Jeremiah. Very well, then I will give you freedom, the freedom to die by war, disease and starvation. I will make every nation in the world horrified at what I do to you. And what did God do to them? He gave them up. Again, the choice for God is become puppet master, restrict and control freedom, or to give freedom, even to do something uh, that's very horrible and self-destructive. And in Lamentations, again, same thing. The Lord in his anger has covered Zion with darkness it's heavenly splendor. He's turned into ruins. On the day of his anger, what does God do on the day of his anger? He abandoned even his temple. And the last verse of Lamentations, boy, this is a, a very, very sad book. The last verse, why have you abandoned us so long? Will you ever remember us again? Bring us back to you, Lord. Bring us back. Restore our ancient glory. Or have you rejected us forever? Is there no limit to your anger? God gave them up. Um, in his anger. It was, again, the only loving thing to do. And we talk about the discipline of captivity. You know, there was a group that came back after 70 years. God had to let them go. Okay, but just a little bit here on the prophet Jeremiah. We've talked about the lives of these prophets and uh, what a life Jeremiah had. Um, here's how God gave him his commission. And I find this kind of interesting. The, the Lord reached out, touched my lips, it's kind of like Isaiah, and said to me, listen, I am giving you the words you must speak. Today I give you authority over nations and kingdoms to uproot and to pull down, to destroy and to overthrow, to build and to plant. Words? This is interesting. And reading on in Jeremiah 5, I will make my words like a fire in your mouth. The people will be like wood and the fire will burn them up. 
very interesting use here of the word fire. Uh, it's interesting, Jesus would say very clearly, you know, in the end, I will not judge you. There is one who will judge you. The words I have spoken will be the judge on the last day. Okay, these people, ultimately, this was the sin of the Holy Spirit that these people committed. The Holy Spirit is to bring us truth, truth, truth about God. And these people rejected, rejected, rejected. It was like a fire uh, that destroyed them. But anyway, Jeremiah's life, uh, I'll just give a few examples here, very colorful. In the fourth year that Jehoiakim was king of Judah, the Lord said to me, get a scroll and write on it everything I have told you about Israel and Judah. Now, here we are in Jeremiah 36. Uh, my goodness, to write it all down. Jeremiah had a scribe, but uh, I just wonder if he rolled his eyes a little bit when God told him, write it all down. Write everything that I've told you from the time I first spoke to you when Josiah was king up to the present. So he writes it all down. And then the king sent this man to get the scroll. He took it, read it to the king and all the officials who were standing around him. It was winter, and the king was sitting in his winter palace in front of the fire. As soon as this man finished reading three or four columns, the king cut them off with a small knife and threw them into the fire. He kept doing this until the entire scroll was burned, but neither the king nor any of his officials who heard all this were afraid or showed any sign of sorrow. And you know what God said? Write it all down again. Had to write the whole scroll down over again, but it just it made no impact. They weren't listening, and so Jeremiah, understandably, is very bitter, just kind of like Job, kind of like many of the Psalms. Uh, you know, it's probably Jeremiah who wrote in Psalms 139 about the you know the babies being dashed against the rocks. He had a lot of anger about uh, what happened to him. Uh, just a little bit of this. Lord, you understand. Remember me and help me. Let me have revenge on those who persecute me. Do not be so patient with them that they succeed in killing me. And the people weren't too happy with Jeremiah. They said, let's do something about Jeremiah. There will, there will always be priests to instruct us, the wise to give us counsel and prophets to proclaim God's message. Let's bring charges against him and stop listening to what he says. So I prayed, Lord, hear what I am saying and listen to what my enemies are saying about me. Is evil the payment for good? Yet they have dug a pit for me to fall in. I mean, he had a really stressful life. Curse the day I was born. Forget the day my mother gave me birth. Curse the one who made my father glad by bringing him the news. It's a boy. You have a son. May he be like those cities that the Lord destroyed without mercy. May he hear cries of pain in the morning and the battle alarm at noon for not killing me before I was born. Then my mother's womb would have been made my grave. Why was I born? Was it only to have trouble and sorrow to end my life in disgrace? So every time I hear becoming a Christian, described as a process of wealth and health and all of this. You just look at the lives of these Bible writers, you know, wow, it's uh, really remarkable what Jeremiah went through. As further example, soon after Josiah's son Zedekiah became king of Judah, the Lord told me to make myself a yoke out of leather straps and wooden crossbars and to put it on my neck. Now, what I found interesting here is I just keep reading on here into the next chapter. In the fourth year that Zedekiah was king, this prophet Hananiah took the yoke off my neck and broke it in pieces. Would that not mean that for four years, Jeremiah wore this yoke around his neck until finally four years into the reign of Zedekiah, uh, it's broken off? We'll read about uh, Ezekiel, how long he would lay on one side. Uh, remember uh, Micah? howled naked like an ostrich. I mean, it's really uh, unbelievable uh, what God asked these prophets to do to make a very, very strong point, to try to reach the people. They were furious with me. 
and had me beaten and locked up in the house of Jonathan, the court secretary, whose house had been made into a prison. I was put in an underground cell and kept there a long time. And they took me and let me down by ropes into a well, which was in the palace courtyard. There was no water in the well, only mud, and I sank down into it. What a life Jeremiah had. Really incredible. But um, he did effectively give this message. Now, what I want to talk about here is 586, we have Jerusalem overtaken by the Babylonians. And uh, what, I, what really struck me this time in going through Jeremiah is what happened to Jeremiah after this. King Nebuchadnezzar commanded uh, his commanding officer to give the following order. Go and find Jeremiah and take good care of him. Now, why is Nebuchadnezzar concerned about Jeremiah? Do not harm him, but do for him whatever he wants. Now, what I, the, what I think happened here is, who's a friend of Nebuchadnezzar back in Babylon? Who is very high in his court that he's very impressed with? Daniel, right? Daniel was very aware of Jeremiah. I mean, this was Daniel's basis for understanding the 70 years. That's how long the captivity would last. That's from the book of Jeremiah. Don't you think Daniel perhaps influenced Nebuchadnezzar and said, you know what, there's one really good man there in Jerusalem and when you go there, make sure you take care of him. And so they seem very concerned here about the prophet Jeremiah. The commanding officer took me aside and said, the Lord your God threatened this land with destruction. Now notice how the enemy views what happened. The Lord your God threatened this land with destruction and now he has done what he said he would. All this happened because your people sinned against the Lord and disobeyed him. This is what the Babylonians are saying. Now I am taking the chains off your wrists and setting you free. If you want to go to Babylonia with me, you may do so and I will take care of you. But if you don't want to go, you don't have to. You have the whole country to choose from. You may go wherever you wish. Now wouldn't you think that would be the end for Jeremiah? He's preached this message for decades. Surrender. Surrender, give in to the Babylonians. Now the Babylonians have taken over the city and uh, wouldn't it just be nice here if Jeremiah goes off into retirement somewhere and he can finally just enjoy uh, a nice life of uh, safety somewhere. Okay, this is what's uh, remarkable here. He's giving this message. We're all the way down to 586. They've taken over the city and this is what happened. I went to stay with Gadaliah in Mizpah and lived among the people who were left in the land. He stayed in Jerusalem, right in that area, even though God had told them so many times, surrender, surrender. He stayed with the people. And this is what happened. Then all the army leaders came with the people of every class and said to me, now you'd think really they'd be listening to Jeremiah now, right? I mean, he got it right every single time. If they only they'd followed the advice of Jeremiah. And now surely the people are willing to listen. So they said to Jeremiah, please do what we ask you. Pray to the Lord our God for us. Pray for all of us who have survived. Once there were many of us, but now only a few of us are left, as you can see. Pray that the Lord our God will show us the way we should go and what we should do. I answered, very well then. I will pray to the Lord our God, just as you have asked, and whatever he says, I will tell you. I will not keep anything back from you. And then they said to me, may the Lord be a true and faithful witness against us if we do not obey all the commands that the Lord our God gives for you. Sounds like they're willing to listen now, doesn't it? Whether it pleases us or not, we will obey the Lord our God to whom we are asking you to pray. All will go well with us if we obey him. Okay, seems like they're finally listening. This is what happened. Ten days later, the Lord spoke to me. So I called together Johanan and all the army leaders 
who were with him and all the other people. I said to them, the Lord, the God of Israel, to whom you sent me with your request has said, if you are willing to go on living in this land, then I will build you up and not tear you down. I will plant you and not pull you up. The destruction I brought on you has caused me great sorrow. Stop being afraid of the king of Babylonia. I am with you. I will rescue you from his power. Because I am merciful, I will make him have mercy on you and let you go back home. I, the Lord, have spoken. Very clear. And you'd think with their attitude, they're going to obey. Right? This is shocking. Oh, a few more words from God here. The Lord, the God of Israel says, just as my anger and fury were poured out on the people of Jerusalem, and we know what that means, so my fury will be poured out on you if you go to Egypt. That's what they wanted to do. They wanted to go to Egypt. You will be a horrifying sight. People will make fun of you and use your name as a curse. You will never see this place again. So God's word is, stay here. Then Azariah and Johanan and all of the other arrogant men said to me, you are lying. The Lord our God did not send you to tell us to go and live in Egypt. Baruch, who was his scribe, has stirred you up against us so that the Babylonians will gain power over us and can either kill us or take us away to Babylonia. Isn't that unbelievable? So then Johanan and all the army officers took everybody left in Judah away to Egypt, together with all the people who had returned from the nations where they had been scattered. The men, women, children, the king's daughters, they took everyone who the commanding officer had left under the care of Gadaliah, including Baruch and me. So poor Jeremiah here. I mean, he just told the people, do not go to Egypt. And now Jeremiah is going off to Egypt. They disobeyed the Lord's command and went into Egypt as far as this. Uh, anyway, I'm not trying to pronounce these Egyptian words. But anyway, they went off to Egypt. Now, I mean, you would think it's over, right? This is what I find so amazing and revealing the patience of God is that he never stops. The Lord spoke to me concerning all the Israelites leaving in Egypt. I mean, why is God still giving a message? Haven't these people proven themselves to be completely uh, hardened? The Lord Almighty, the God of Israel said, you yourselves have seen the destruction I brought on Jerusalem and all the other cities of Judah. Even now, they are still in ruins and no one lives in them because their people had done evil and had made me angry. They offered sacrifices to other gods and served gods that neither they nor you nor your descendants ever worshiped. I kept sending you my servants, the prophets, who told you not to do this terrible thing that I hate, but you would not listen or pay any attention. You would not give up your evil practice of sacrificing to other gods. So I poured out my anger and fury on the towns of Judah and on the streets of Jerusalem, and I set them on fire. They were left in ruins and became a horrifying sight as they are today. And so I, the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, now ask, why are you doing such an evil thing to yourselves? Do you want to bring destruction on men and women, children and babies, so that none of your people will be left? Why do you make me angry by worshiping idols and by sacrificing to other gods here in Egypt where you have come to live? Are you, going, are you doing this just to destroy yourselves so that every nation on earth will make fun of you and use your name as a curse? Unbelievable. Here's the people's response. Then all the men who knew that their wives offered sacrifices to other gods and all the women who were standing there, including the Israelites who lived in southern Egypt, a large crowd in all, said to me, we refuse to listen to what you have told us in the name of the Lord. 
We will do everything that we said we would. We will offer sacrifices to our goddess, the queen of heaven, and we will pour out wine offerings to her, just as we and our ancestors, our king and our leaders used to do in the towns of Judah and in our streets of Jerusalem. Then we had plenty of food. We were prosperous and had no troubles. But ever since we stopped sacrificing to the queen of heaven and stopped pouring out wine offerings to her, we have had nothing and our people have died in war and of starvation. Um, when Jesus describes the sin of the Holy Spirit, it is in the context of the people looking at Jesus in the face, seeing his miracles, listening to his words, and saying he does these miracles by Satan. When we look at God and we see Satan, and when we look at Satan and we see God, uh, that is ultimately the sin of the Holy Spirit. And so these people, what can God do? I mean, he can do nothing more, and if the Apocrypha is correct... Uh, Jeremiah was stoned to death in Egypt. But what I see here good about God is he never stopped. He just kept revealing more and more and more with every year that went by until finally his own prophet is killed. He has no way of reaching these people anymore. So uh, that's how far God is willing to go. It, uh, and I think uh, Jeremiah, you know, he will arrive in heaven and I think he'll have no complaints. Um, and I think he'll be quite honored that God was able to use him in such a way to reveal this wonderful message. So let's pray. <clears throat> Father, once again, we admire at how far you are willing to go, how much your condescension would take you in this story, that you never give up on any of us, that you are always there revealing a message through every possible method. So we ask again that um, our understanding of you become closer and closer, our friendship, our relationship, that even in this very, very busy time of life, that we may come to know you as a friend, is our prayer. Amen.